going to take a fascinating journey together today to some interesting places, to Pompeii. Anybody been to Pompeii here? Yes, I notice some have been here. Right, you've, you know the place then. Anybody been to Masada? Okay, some more. Everybody's been travelling lately. All right, Masada's an amazing place. So we'll be travelling there today too, also down to Jerusalem. And uh, we are going to see some incredible things today concerning the ability to predict the future from what we, where we began yesterday. You know, back in about 332 BC it was, Napoleon, uh, not Napoleon, he wasn't living then, was he, if you know your history, not Napoleon, Alexander the Great, he was on his way to ancient Egypt. And he was going to Egypt to do battle with the people of Egypt because they, of course, were controlled by the Medo-Persians and he was starting to take completely control over the Medo-Persian Empire. And he was on his way down there when he stopped off at Jerusalem. And he was actually planning to destroy the city uh, of Jerusalem. But as he got there, or just before he arrived, some priests from the, the, the temple went out to meet him and his army, and they showed him an incredible prophecy found in the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel, which is a story or a vision that Daniel had around about 540 BC. And as they shared with him this prophecy, he decided not to destroy the city of Jerusalem because of what he heard from that prophecy on that occasion. Now, why did this prophecy change Alexander the Great's mind? We'll find the answer to that as we proceed this afternoon. But first of all, we must go to the city of Jerusalem. 2,000 years ago, and then we'll come back to Alexander the Great a little later on. 2,000 years ago, we want to journey back in time to that point in time. You know, Herod the Great was a puppet, really, for the Roman Empire. And he was in charge of much of Palestine, what we call Palestine today, or that part of Israel. And he was the one who embellished the temple that had been rebuilt when the Jewish people came back from Babylon, which we discussed yesterday, when they came from Babylon and they rebuilt their city, that temple that was built, Herod the Great, in actual fact, he really rebuilt that. They were still um, using the temple, but he pulled it down piece by piece and built over the top of it sort of thing so they could still use it. But when it had finished, it was called Herod's Temple, or the sanctuary as we, as the Jewish people call it. This temple was one of the great wonders of the ancient world in the first century. A magnificent building, an incredible structure, and uh, one that the Romans did not want to see destroyed themselves. This Herod, by the way, did a lot of building that you can see in uh, Israel today. You can come here to Caesarea and you see what's left of Herod's palace here on the right. 
That's all that's left of his magnificent palace at Caesarea. Caesarea, by the way, was the area from which the Romans really controlled Palestine. They lived there and they sent soldiers down to Jerusalem in larger numbers at the time of Jewish festivals and so on, where they, when they expected some trouble. But Herod the Great built this great aqueduct as well that stretched for quite a few kilometres to bring water to Caesarea. He also had about four fortresses, one here on the left at near Bethlehem called Herodian, and you can visit that amazing fortress today. Probably the greatest one is the one at Masada on the right, and uh, this is an incredible view out over the Dead Sea, as you can see in the background, way in the background from, from up here at Masada. He also had a fortress at Macarius in Jordan today. This was the place where, if you remember the story of John the Baptist, he was beheaded by, by the descendant, one of the descendants of Herod the Great, and uh, he built that fortress as well. Herod the Great had lots of enemies, and that's, I guess, one of the reasons he had lots of fortresses as well. To give an idea of what Herod was like, Herod, when he came to his death, just before his death, he said, when I die, I want you to kill a lot of people so someone will be crying when I die. I mean, what sort of a bizarre character is that? But he's the Herod that tried to kill the baby Jesus in the Christmas story that we're so familiar with. This is the man, and he was a great builder in ancient times. And he had built a temple for the Jewish people to... In, in, in a sense, to, to gain their favour. And this became the symbol of Jewish nationalistic pride, if we could put it that way. They, they just admired and greatly appreciated the temple that Herod helped them with. Well, it was to this temple that Jesus the Christ came during his life, and especially in the last week of his life, 2,000 years ago. While he was here on one occasion, his followers took him for a little tour, tiki tour we might say, of the temple and showed him the magnificent structure that Herod had built, showing him all the stones and so on. And in response, this is what Jesus had to say on that occasion. Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things, this magnificent place in other words? Assuredly, you can bet your life on it in other words, we say today colloquially. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now this took the disciples of Jesus by surprise. They, how, how, come, how come this would happen to this magnificent building? So shortly after, they came up here to the Mount of Olives where we're taking the photo from and uh, up on the Mount of Olives they asked this significant question to Jesus the Christ. He, they said to him, listen Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? When is it going to happen? When will it, these things take place about the, the temple being demolished and not one stone upon another? Jesus then began to outline for them in quite specific details what would happen to the city of Jerusalem, what would happen to the temple, and what would happen to the Jewish nation. He outlined all of these things as he sat up there. But not only when he sat up there, he had already mentioned some of these things, but he pulled a lot of it together on this occasion. Different times he mentioned what would happen, and we'll have a look at some of those predictions, including the ones he talked about up here on the Mount of Olives. Notice what he said. First of all, he said Jerusalem would be surrounded by an embankment or a rampart or a wall, and it would be destroyed. Here were his words on this occasion. Now, by the way, 
This is when he is coming to the city of Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. And he's looking over the city. This is when he spoke these words. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why did he weep over the city of Jerusalem? Here's why. Saying, days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment he said, around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. So here was his prediction about an embankment around the city of Jerusalem on this occasion. Number two, he said, the temple would be completely destroyed. Not only did he say that on this occasion when the disciples showed him the the city, the temple of Jerusalem, but he mentioned this on another occasion. He was... Um, talking to the Jewish leaders on this occasion, and he said these words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you can almost hear him, almost sobbing in actual fact, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather, he says, wanted to gather your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now he noticed what he said, your Your house, meaning your temple, which is called the house of the Lord, your house, the temple, is left to you desolate. So here he is predicting, just before he died, that this is what would happen to the city of Jerusalem. And then, of course, the temple, I should say. And then, of course, he mentioned those words, not one stone would be left upon another. Number three, by the way, thinking of the temple stones, If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see these stones as part of the retaining wall. You see, Herod the Great, in building this temple, built a massive retaining wall and the temple was on top of the structure. You can see typical Herodian stones here. If you can see my red pointer up the top here, and this is a typical Herodian stone, this little, like a bevel around here and all the way along. This is a stone that Herod had put in the temple. Now, these are massive stones, some of the stones that make up the the uh, the retaining wall. You can see some of them 20 metres long, 2 metres wide, 3 metres high. That's a rock and a half, isn't it? Now, not suggesting that the whole temple was made of stones that size, but they were clearly very large stones that were used to build the temple. Not one stone would be left upon another. Number three, Jesus said the Jews, sadly, would fall by the sword in days to come. Now, it was on the occasion of Jesus on the Via Dolorosa that he mentioned some words. I'll share them in a moment. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword, he said to his followers on this occasion. But you remember, on the way to the to the, the to Golgotha or the cross, he came down what is called today the Via Dolorosa. This is part of it as you go into the the ancient church of the Holy Sepulchre here in Jerusalem. And on his way, he talked with some women, and this is what he said. He said, to a, at a great multitude of the people followed him on that occasion, and women who also mourned and lamented him because of his condition. You've seen the passion of the Christ, I'm sure many of you. He was really torn apart there by the way the Romans treated him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Then he said these words, For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs which have never borne, 
and the breasts which have never nursed. In other words, it's going to be such a tragic time, the women will be blessed who don't have kids. Now, usually it was the opposite, that women who couldn't have children, they were looked upon as almost sort of cursed. But he's saying you're going to be blessed because the terrible times that are coming upon the city of Jerusalem. Number four, Jesus predicted that the Jews would be scattered among the nations of the world. Jesus said they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. And then fifthly, he said the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish people, would inhabit the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, he said, it will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, were these predictions fulfilled? They're very specific predictions, as you can see there, from what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. What happened? Were they fulfilled? And if so, how were they fulfilled? Well, in 66 AD, Gessius Florus, who was in charge of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, he decided to take a temple tax from the Jewish people, and they revolted. There was no way they were going to give any more taxes to the Romans and not from the temple. And so they massacred the Roman garrison. Well, the Romans weren't going to take that sitting down, and so the Romans came to deal with this revolt. But before they got there, some of the Jewish people at that time, when the revolt began, they went up to Masada. And they captured Masada from a small Roman garrison that had control of Masada, which was where Herod the Great had his great fortress. Of course, Herod's dead by this time, 40 or 50 years later. And up here at Masada, the Jews dismantled or drove the, the Romans from here. And you can actually see Herod's palace today, a magnificent mountain fortress, but he had a couple of palaces even up here. He planned to live in style, even though he might have to flee here one day. You notice here, uh, his, one of his palaces, it almost hangs, literally hangs off the cliff pretty well. We get a close-up here. You will notice on your left here, here are, oh, sorry, your, yeah, yes, your left over here, isn't it? Over here, you'll notice the top of the palace up here. You come down, here's another section of it, and then a third section of one of the palaces hanging off. Magnificent view of the Dead Sea. That's a $10 million view, better than any in Sydney, that one. An incredible view out over the Dead Sea. And here we are up the top looking down on one of the levels of his palace, a circular palace. So Herod the Great had built this structure and now the Jewish zealots who had driven the Romans from Jerusalem and, and massacred that Jewish uh, garrison, now they come and they take over the fortress. We'll need to come back here a little later in our story. Well, the Romans, as I said, they weren't going to take this sitting down, so they sent Cestius Gallus. He came to Jerusalem with a lot of soldiers, surrounded the city at, on this occasion. Now, Jesus the Christ had made a, some very specific warning instructions to his followers as they sat looking over the city of Jerusalem and he foretold what would happen as we're talking about. He gave them some other instructions about what to do when some of these events began to take place. Notice what he said and how he warned them. He said, now listen, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. It's about to be destroyed. He said, then let them which are in Judea in the surrounding country region, let them that in Judea flee to the mountains. 
and let them which are in the midst of the city, those of you who are inside the city, you need to get out of there. And let not them that are in the country regions go into it. So don't come back into the city. That's not wise. And certainly run from the city when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. Now, the good question is this. How do you flee a city when it's surrounded? That's almost impossible because the army's there. Your enemies are there. Well, interestingly, we do not know why, but for some strange reason, even though Cestius Gallus had really taken control of this revolt by surrounding the city, he mysteriously withdrew his forces and they, they left Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish people inside, the zealots and so on, they chased after Cestius Gallus and they won an enormous victory over his, his army that he had brought when they, when they retreated. At that very time, the followers of Jesus inside the city realized this is the time to run for your life in accordance to what Jesus had warned them about 40 years before. And so they fled from Jerusalem at this time when Cestius Gallus withdrew and they came over here to Jordan to Pella. By the way, Pella is important for us in Sydney because it's the Sydney University that's been excavating here in Pella in Jordan for a year, number of years now. And you can visit, their, see their work here in, um, in Jordan. So those followers of Jesus escaped at that time. Now, the Romans decided then, now that Cestius Gallus's force has been destroyed, they sent Vespasian. Vespasian was a great commander, and he systematically attacked the towns and the villages of Judea. He let the people escape from those cities. He didn't worry about killing them at that time. He let them run, but only in one direction, toward Jerusalem. And so pretty soon, when he attacked all these various towns and villages, everybody was going was holed up in the city of Jerusalem. He had them all in one place where he could deal with them. Well, as he's about to attack the city of Jerusalem, Vespasian becomes the emperor because Nero has just died. And Titus, his son, takes over the siege of Jerusalem. 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem is besieged by the armies of Titus. He camps actually up here where we're taking the photo from, or this picture is drawn from, the Mount of Olives. This is where Titus set up his, his headquarters and had this campaign against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Inside the city, terrible things were happening. The Jews were fighting each other for control of the rebellion. It was a bloodbath without even the Romans getting involved in the thing, sadly. Titus starved the people of Jerusalem. How did he do it? He did this by... Uh, building a five-mile earthen rampart or wall or embankment around the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had predicted that 40 years before that this is exactly what he would do and that's exactly what happened. Million, over a, a million people perished in the siege of Jerusalem, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. And as I said, many of them were killed as the Jews fought each other for control of the rebellion. Josephus tells us what happened when the Romans took the temple and when they took the, the final stages of the city, they climbed over mountains of corpses, so to speak, to continue the fight. It was a horrific scene there in Jerusalem. Indeed, as Jesus had said, people fell by the sword. And tragically, ever since those times, Jewish people have suffered terribly uh, and many inhumane treatments, as we saw in the Nazi Holocaust and so on. In fact, I was in Poland this time last year, and I visited Auschwitz. It's a terrible place, really, to think of what took place here. 
Many, many Jewish people lost their lives. And many Jewish people like these men here, you see, visiting Auschwitz today in remembrance of what took place here back in the Second World War. Now, the Jews' last stand took place right here in the temple. You can see a fortress over here that Herod had built, if you can see it up the back here. This is known as the Fortress of Antonia. The Romans knew that if the Jews were going to revolt at any time, you could expect that the temple would be right in the middle of it because this was their symbol of their national uh, Ju Judaistic nationalism. And so the Romans had built this fortress. They took it from the Jews. In, in, quite uh, amazingly, the Jewish the soldiers were asleep one night and the Romans were able to get into a secret passageway and they, they, they took the Antonia. And so the Jews then were holed up in the temple itself and that's where the last great battle was fought. The Romans moved into the temple area next and Titus had warned his soldiers, do not destroy the temple. We're not going to destroy this place. It's one of the great structures of the ancient world. Keep it so that it can be used again. But in the middle of all the fighting, somebody threw a firebrand into the temple and the whole thing went up in smoke and, uh, and it completely demolished the temple. In fact, it was so hot, obviously, with such a fire that the silver and the gold melted and much of the gold and silver melted and ran down between the cracks of some of those great stones that the temple was, was built of. And when the fighting had finished and the fire had gone out, the Romans just pried one stone off another to get the gold and the silver between the cracks and they completely demolished the temple. Not one stone was left upon another. In fact, when you visit Jerusalem today, you can go around the base of the temple mount and you see them of these great stones that have been thrown down that were once up on top of the retaining wall where the temple was. In fact, make sure you go into the the exhibition room this evening when we have a break and you will see a very interesting inscription. It says the place where the trumpets are blown. This was a, the place where the trumpeters blew for the messages from the temple. The Jews had different, celebra different festivals and celebrations and so on and the trumpets were often blown and this was the place where the trumpeters blew for the temple services. And they discovered that among this rubble here at the bottom of the temple uh, platform. So make sure you get us, you see that. By the way, something else you need to see there this afternoon. There is an inscription there of a notice that was put up in part of the temple. You may have read, some of you, how that non-Jewish people were not allowed to go into certain parts of the Jewish temple. It was forbidden. In fact, the sign says, if you go in there, you will die. You will be killed. You're not allowed to go in there. That's only for the Jewish people. Now, in the book of Acts, if some of you know the story of Paul, he was accused on one occasion of taking a non-Jewish person into the temple, the sacred temple precincts where only the Jews could go, and that's why Paul was arrested and eventually beheaded. Now, that inscription, part of that inscription, we have a replica of that on display in the, uh, in, the, in the exhibition room. So make sure you see some of those things. By the way, another one or two before we continue the story. I talked about Hezekiah's tunnel yesterday. There's an inscription there that has been from Hezekiah's tunnel, a replica of it. As you come out of the end of Hezekiah's tunnel and you come to the Pool of Siloam that we mentioned yesterday, when you come out, there's a, 
there's a hole in one of the in, on one side of the the tunnel, a wall on the wall, and that inscri- there was an inscription there, and someone stole it, and it ended up in the Istanbul Museum, and that's where you see it, the real one today, and we have a a, a copy of that there. It tells how the workmen of Hezekiah the king in the days of the Assyrian campaign they built this tunnel by starting at either end and they met in the middle. So make sure you see those inscriptions. So here we are now. This is what nearly 600 years later. The Romans have come to the city, just like the Babylonians come 600 years before nearly. Now the Romans are coming to destroy the city of Jerusalem and its temple. So they threw the massive stones down, including the place where they blew the trumpet, that stone. Now if you go to Jerusalem today and you go on to the Temple Mount, you will see that there is it's a flat area. Only structures here now are the Islamic buildings that were built many, many years later by the Muslims when they came and uh, they took over the city of Jerusalem. And it's incredible. Jesus said not one stone left upon another. There it is today. You can see it and you can see those stones at the bottom of the Temple Mount as we just saw. You go to the city of Rome today and you go to the the forum area of ancient Rome and you can see the arch of Titus. This is a victory arch for the great victory they had over the Jewish people in 70 AD when finally the temple and the city was destroyed. You look up underneath the arch and you will see the Romans carrying away the seven-branched candlestick here. Maybe you can't see that there, right? This is the seven-branched candlestick. Exactly what Jesus said, the temple would be destroyed. You even see it from the Roman picture of it here. They're taking away the structures from the temple back to Rome. Now today there is no Jewish temple, of course, in Jerusalem. Many people would like to have one there, but today it certainly does not exist. When the Jewish people had been defeated by the Romans at the end of that time period, the 70 AD, at the end of that great war, the remnant of the Jewish forces were left on Masada. By the time we come to the the destruction of Jerusalem, over 900 people are on Masada, 900 zealots are called the Sakari. They were a, a group of zealots, an extremely vicious type of people, in fact, and they were the ones who were now on the top of Masada. And they'd been there for about four years since those few, soul, few Jews took it from the Romans. Now the Romans, after they'd finished Jerusalem, they came here to Masada, and they, de- they were determined to take this place from the Jewish zealots. They came with thousands of soldiers against these about a thousand men, women and children. You can see why Masada was such a great fortress for Herod the Great, can't you? I mean, it stands all on its own, way up in the air, hardly a place to come and approach this without you, you're not going to be thrown down again. You can see one of the approaches that you can walk up this hill today, it's called the Snake Path for a very good reason, and it's a good climb up there. We're going to come to the back here in a moment. You'll notice this structure here. This is a Roman siege ramp. This is where the Romans came from, and we'll talk about that in a moment. They built that ramp to get up to the top here. Now, when the Romans got here, the first thing they did was build a wall right around the mountain, this uh, mountain fortress. You can see it right here up the front here. This wall went right around around the mountain to stop people getting in or getting out getting in for relief, getting out to escape. No way were they going to let anybody in. Then around outside of that wall, they built these great big Roman forts or camps. 
strategic places around the mountain. That's where the Romans were camped. In these, You can still see them today, very clearly marked out there below you from the top of Masada. Then they built this siege ramp, and they used lots of slave labor to build this ramp up to the lowest part that they could get to get up to the walls on the top of Masada. Finally, when they got their machines up close enough, they were able to launch their missiles, and you can still see some of their huge stones that they've catapulted into the Jewish fortress uh, up there on the top of Mount of uh, Masada. They finally broke through when they were able to get their siege battering rams in place and pound away at the wall. In fact, first of all, the Jews, when they could see where they were bringing their rams, they decided to fill this gap between the walls with dirt. You see, up on top of Masada, there was what we call a casemate wall, a double casemate, meaning there's two walls side by side. And the Jewish people and Herod would have rooms between those walls. When the Jews saw where they were going to bring their battering ram, they filled that with dirt, that space with dirt and timber, so when the Romans pounded the thing, it really compacted it. Then the Romans got a bright idea, and they were able to get a fire going, and with their rams and the fire, they were able to finally break through, and this is where they they got through. And the Jews knew that the next day the Romans would pour in here by the thousands and it would all be over and they would have their women raped, they would be slaves, they would be terribly tortured and they knew this is not going to be a good thing. So that night, right here in the Jewish synagogue on the top of Masada, they had a meeting and Eliezer ben Yair, by the way we have on display a little ostracon, a little piece of pottery shirt with the... um, which is belonged to Ben Yir, it's believed. And uh, he gave a stirring speech of what would happen and, and so on and what they ought to do, and it was decided as a result of his great speech to these 900 men, women and children that they would commit suicide together. So that's what they did. Each man killed his wife and his children, first of all. Ten men were selected, and they killed those other men who lay down beside their wives, and they ran the sword through them. And then those ten men, there were lots cast. They, the one man finished off the others and then fell on his sword. And when the Romans came up on top the next day, there was nobody. By the way, you can still see the room it's believed where the, well, this is where the ostracon were founded. These are believed to be the lots, the ten lots that were used to find out, okay, who's going to finish the last nine off in, uh, up there. Now, when the Romans came up, all they could see was just bodies everywhere and silence. They were quite amazed. They were quite taken aback by what these people did up there rather than be captured. Of course, Masada has been very famous for the modern Israeli forces where they have oftentimes taken an oath up here uh, because of the great thing that took place up here from their perspective. Now, some years later, again, the Jews revolted yet again in what is known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And the emperor, Hadrian, who was the emperor of Rome at this time, he said, I've had enough, and he drove the Jews from Jerusalem and from Palestine pretty well. This is by 135 A.D., now the Jews are expelled largely from Palestine. And today the Jews are scattered around the world. I was running these programs in New York just uh, two or three years ago. And in that city, in Brooklyn alone, there are two million Jewish people. 
The Jews are scattered among the great cities of the world today, here in Australia, in London, in Moscow, and you name it, throughout Europe. Jesus certainly got it right. They are scattered around the world largely today. The Gentiles, Jesus said, would inhabit Jerusalem, and that's exactly what you find when you go to the old city of Jerusalem. It is not the Jews who are the, in the, the, the greater numbers in the old city. It is the non-Jewish people, the Christian quarter, the Armenian quarter. You also have an Arab section, and of course you do have a Jewish section in the old city of Jerusalem. No question Jesus got these things spot on, and yet he made those predictions 2,000 years ago. And today, of course, the Palestinian Arabs control the sacred temple mound. That's why the Jewish people, you often see them if you watch the news sometimes at the bottom of the the retaining wall as they read their scriptures and they pray, rocking backwards and forwards there by the thousands they come to this place because of what was on top of this uh, retaining wall, the temple itself, which was destroyed by the Romans. Now, you see, Christ's predictions were exactly fulfilled. Right to the very point, you notice, five great predictions, five specific predictions. Every one of them we can see from history and from archaeology has been fulfilled. Amazing when you stop and think about it, made 2,000 years ago. In actual fact, Jesus was drawing some of his material that he was shared on that occasion from the book of Daniel. Daniel, in chapter 8 and 9, had mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus gave more detail and more predictions. But he was drawing from the prophet Daniel. Notice what he had to say about the prophet Daniel in his discussion about the fall of Jerusalem. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then he adds these words, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, you see. So he was drawing on the writings of the prophet Daniel as he shared what was going to happen to Jerusalem, its people, and its temple. Now you remember from yesterday that the book of Daniel was a favorite of the people who copied those Dead Sea Scrolls. Those Dead Sea Scrolls date back to 100 to 200 years before the time of Christ. That's the copies we have. The originals came from much earlier than that, but we don't have those. We just have the copies. And uh, these Dead Sea Scrolls, as I said, a favorite book of these people found in large numbers was the book of Daniel, manuscripts and parts of the book of Daniel. In the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel sees a great war between a ram and a goat. And in this great war, he tells us who the ram and who the goat are. So who are they? Let's notice what he says. He says, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The two horns. Medo-Persia, first of all, it was the Medes who were in the ascendancy in that dual empire. And then the Persians came to the fore and they dominated that, uh, that alliance of two great powers, the Medes and the Persians. So that's what the ram represents, says Daniel, or Daniel is told. What about the goat? Well, Daniel is told the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So very clearly, he tells him, the goat is Greece. Now, I want you to stop and think about this. Daniel is writing this at about 540 B.C. 
He says when the, when the Babylonians are in control, because if you read Daniel 8, it says Belshazzar is the king of Babylon at this time. And he's told that the next empire will be Medo-Persia by name. He's also told that there will come a power that will defeat the Medo-Persians called the Greeks. Now we're 200 years from the Greek period yet, and he says the, the man who, who does this will be the first king. Not the third or the fourth, he's the first king. Now, who was the first king of Babylon, of uh, Greece, I should say? Notice, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Everybody knows, if you've studied a little bit of school history from ancient history at school, you'll know the first king of the United Greek Empire, of course, was Alexander the Great, that Macedonian king. Alexander the Great. When he was told about this prophecy, you can understand why he decided not to destroy Jerusalem. The priest told him, listen, Daniel told us 300, 200 years ago, uh, Alexander, Daniel told us, sir, you can imagine them talking to this man, they're going to lose their life, their city's going to be destroyed, sir, we've got good news for you. Daniel told us, he's one of us, he told us in his book that the Medo-Persians would be defeated by the Greeks. See it here, Alexander, Greece. And see what it says here, by the first king, that's you, Alexander, you are going to topple the Medes and Persians. You can understand why Alexander thought, boy, that's pretty good news, you see. I'm going to conquer. So he did not destroy Jerusalem at this time, even though he had planned to. He went on down to Egypt to deal with the, what was left of the Medo-Persian Empire down in that part of uh, the ancient world. So Alexander the Great had heard of this prophecy. Therefore, Daniel continues, Therefore the male growth grew very great, but when it became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones, four notable horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation. Notice what he goes on to say, but not with its power. Now you think about it. Daniel is saying 200 years before the Greeks come to power, First king, he will topple the Medo-Persians and Alexander the Great did. But after that, Greece will be split into four. That horn will be broken and four will come up in its place. Now that's exactly what happened. When Alexander the Great died right here in Babylon, his plans for a vast empire that extended from Greece across what we call Turkey today and into Mesopotamia and down through Syria and Israel and down to Egypt, it all ended when he died because the four generals that uh, who were in power or the greatest generals at that time, they fought among themselves for control of his empire, but all they really ended up doing was dividing Greece into four. Exactly as was predicted 200 years before, that's exactly what took place. Now listen here, my friends, this is, this is incredible. I find it amazing because we have seen already that when you go to the book of Daniel, everything that he says historically, we have some tremendous evidence. He said Nebuchadnezzar was the builder, and he was. He said Belshazzar was the last king, and he was, and people didn't know that. Uh, until just a few years ago. You see, this book of Daniel was actually written 
in the 6th century because of all the evidence, and he's predicting that this would take place, and it did take place. This book is uncanny when you think about it. It's prophetic accuracy. That's why it has a proven track record of fulfilled predictions. Daniel said four notable ones, four notable horns came up toward the four winds of heaven and out of one of them, meaning one of the winds, one of the directions of the compass, one of the four points of the compass came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south Notice the direction down to the south, down to the out to the east, and toward the glorious land. That's what the biblical writers called Israel. He even exalted himself as the prince of the host. And it says by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Now what? Or who is this little horn now that comes out of one of the four points of the compass? We have seen the Medo-Persians symbolized by this ram with two horns, a dual empire, followed by a goat with a notable horn, the first king, Greece, mentioned by name. Now out of one of the four points of the compass, a little horn. Notice the actions we just read about that help us to see who this horn is and what power it is. It's Rome as you'll see as we give you the details now. This is talking about the great power of the Romans. Notice what it says here, its actions. Number one, it went south. You remember your history of Rome, Mark, Anthony, Cleopatra, the Romans went down south to Egypt, which was the direction south of Israel, where Daniel is giving the perspective from. It went east to Mesopotamia. That's where the Romans headed for. It went to Israel to the glorious land. In 63 BC, Pompey, General Pompey, marched his soldiers into Israel for the first time and they controlled that land through the Herods and so on. Number four, it was greater than the Greeks. And of course it was. The Romans conquered the Greeks. They were exceeding great. Greece was great, but the Romans were much greater. They stretched from, as we saw yesterday, Great Britain right across the Mediterranean region. Number five, says Daniel, it would stand against Jesus Christ. He said it would stand against the prince of princes. In the biblical writings, the prince of princes or the king of kings is referred to by John in the apocalypse as Jesus. In fact, on the cross of Calvary, Pilate had an inscription. The Romans put up the king of the Jews. Jesus is called a king and he's called the king of kings or the prince of princes. Not only that. We can see when that took place, when the Romans crucified Jesus Christ on behalf of the Jewish people on that occasion. This is what Daniel is predicting. He's outlining these things are going to take place. He also said it cast down the sanctuary or the temple. Now we just saw that when the Romans came, they destroyed the temple in 70 AD. No question about it. And we've seen even the Romans depicted that in their great city of Rome at the Arch of Titus. Now, of course, that meant the daily sacrifices were taken away, as Daniel mentioned. There were no more temple services now because there's no temple in which to do those services. The Romans have finished it off. Finally, Daniel predicted that the Romans would trample on the people of God. Now, if you've studied a little bit of your history of the Christian religion as it related to the Roman Empire, you will have seen this very famous 
icon buildings today in which this took place, like the Colosseum in Rome. Many Christians lost their lives here. Uh, The Romans fed them to the lions. They put some of them on stakes, put tar on them and set them alight for the light for the games that night. Many of them were taken, more of them were taken to the Circus Maximus in Rome and there they were executed because the Romans loved bloodthirsty stuff. That was their entertainment and the Christians provided that entertainment for them thanks to the Romans and the way they brutally treated them. Daniel was right. He predicted that this power would do all these things and even trample on the friends of God. You see, the essentials for knowing the future, we said yesterday, are twofold. You need historical accuracy. You don't want to be dealing with myths and legends and fairy tales. You want the real deal. And the biblical prophets not only predicted, but the stuff they talked about from everyday life can be historically shown to be true, as we've seen already this evening and yesterday. But not on only that, of course. more imp- Well, equally as important, you need a proven track record of fulfilled predictions dependable predictions and tonight we have seen them in two places Jesus the Christ made amazing predictions which were all been fulfilled and Daniel the prophet 2,500 years ago he outlined what would take place uh, to the situation in Israel you see the biblical prophets writings are the most reliable source for knowing the future in fact when Jesus finished or he started you remember he said assuredly I tell you you can bet your life it's going to happen that was reminds us of what Daniel said yesterday he said when he finished showing the king the rise and fall of nations from his day right down to our own time he said the dream is certain the interpretation is sure and it's exactly happened I'm glad the prophet spoke with such confidence as they shared their messages that they had been given So Christ's predictions were exactly fulfilled. Now he not only made predictions about what would happen to Jerusalem and its city and its people, but he continued to share them predictions concerning the very times in which we're living in. You see, he hadn't finished his discussion on the Mount of Olives 2,000 years ago. He had more to say, and we'll pick that up. When we come back, we'll continue on. And these are high-octane predictions that you will sit here and you will say, man, how did he get that so right from so long ago? Prediction after prediction that he made 2,000 years ago, we can see. We're going to take part two, Pompeii, how near is the end? We'll go back to the city of Jerusalem. We're going to start by going to Pompeii. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM.